Welcome to Season 6, Episode 11 of the I Want to Believe Podcast. I'm Nomar Slavic. I'd like to take this time to give a little bit of thanks for some of the things that are currently in my life that I am very, very thankful for. First and foremost is my partner, Christina Donovan. She is one of the most kindest accepting and non-judgmental people I have ever met. She is absolutely wonderful and is the love of my life. Christina, I love you. I am thankful for my best friend, my partner in crime, Kyle Sawyer. We've had a difficult year with trying to connect with one another, like literally physically, like being able to like get together and hang out as friends. Like we're still homies, obviously, <laughs> uh, but there's a, uh, a really big distance issue with us and there's uh, internet goblins running amok between us. So it's hard for us to connect as much as we have in the past. And that really sucks. And I am thankful that he is still in my life. And I love that dude to death. Shout out Kyle. Of course, I am thankful for my family and the animals that are within our family, all of the kitties and dogs and all of the little furry creatures that we love. I am also thankful for all of the friends and acquaintances and business partners and all of the people I have met through this work. And that encompasses my writing and doing the podcast and going to conventions and meeting people, talking to them, hearing their stories, uh, connecting with uh, other colleagues that are in the same field and doing what I do. People that are in related fields and doing something similar. It's just so great to connect with so many different and wonderful people. And I am blessed and very thankful for that as well. But on that note, what we're doing today on the podcast is I'm going to be sharing uh, one of those uh, things that I was invited to, to share my work and to share my thoughts and words on 
extraterrestrial phenomena and for my books and to share the stories that I've learned firsthand. Now I get to share them with other people. This was a talk I gave last September at the CM Bailey Public Library in Winthrop, Maine. I tell a lot of different stories throughout this evening, and we're starting here with Kala Orion, who is a librarian at the library, and she introduces me here. And then I get into a couple of stories from my childhood. I have written about them before, but I think this might be one of the first times you're hearing it on the podcast, so I hope you enjoy. Before we jump into the episode, I wanted to give a quick reminder that all of our I Want to Believe social media and email are in the show notes. You can visit my online store for access to my books and other projects such as Granite Skies, Otherworldly Encounters, We Only Come Out at Night, and more. You can visit slevicstore.company.site or the Greenhand Bookshop online or their location in Portland, Maine. They also have copies of my works. Just check the show notes for links. Lastly, my documentary, Otherworldly Amour, is streaming exclusively on Paraflix Paranormal Plus. This is a subscription service much like Netflix and offers monthly or yearly subscriptions. Once subscribed, you have access to not only Otherworldly Amour, but hundreds of other paranormal shows, documentaries, and even horror movies. By using the code OTHERWORLDLYAMOR10 at checkout, you can get 10% off your first three months. That's OTHERWORLDLYAMOR, A-M-O-R, one zero. Links are in the show notes. Hello, welcome to the final Lakes Region Forum event of 2022. This year's events were sponsored by the Winthrop Area Federal Credit Union and Winthrop Air Library Foundation. Tonight, we are excited to welcome paranormal investigator Nomar Slevik, who will guide us through a presentation on reported extraterrestrial sightings, abductions, and UFO hotspots around New England. He does have some copies of his books for sale here tonight if you're interested, including one of his new releases, Otherworldly Encounters. It'll be right back there. Nomar was born in Fort Kent and grew up in Bar Harbor. When he's not investigating the paranormal, doing podcasts, writing books, or giving talks at libraries, he can be found riding his e-bike around Down East Maine. Please welcome Nomar Slevik. Hey, everybody. Hello. I'm Nomar Slevik, and I'm a writer, researcher, interviewer, and a quasi-sometimes investigator of all things strange. But I do have a particular focus on all things extraterrestrial, UFO-related. That's a special interest of mine. This first story is my own. I grew up in Fort Kent, and we lived on Main Street, running parallel to Main Street, was the St. John River. Right beyond the St. John River is Canada. You could literally throw a rock and hit Canada. That's how close we lived. So I go to bed one night as normal, nothing out of the ordinary, and I'm woken up in the middle of the night by a loud bang. I don't know what it is, but my eyes kind of pop open and I'm like searching around for what could have made that noise. And then I start to hear light taps at my window. So I look over there and the sky lights up. And I was like, oh, a thunder and lightning storm. 
And so I wanted to kneel up on my bed to watch the thunder and lightning storm. And the St. John River was really rough and it was really going. And I was seeing the sky light up. And every once in a while, I saw the little, the little lightning bolts. And I'm like, this is amazing. And after just a moment, there was this really, for lack of a better term, like a really obscene lightning bolt. Like if I were to ask you to draw a lightning bolt, you would draw that jagged yellow line where it kind of looks like the charging indicator on your smartphone. And it was, it was stuck in a cloud. This is how my young mind perceived it. And it's how my adult mind remembers it. But it was a lightning bolt stuck in a cloud and there was electricity coming off of it. And there were booms associated with it. And I'm not sure what happened after that. I just remember waking up in the morning. I go to the bathroom as I'm walking back from the bathroom to my room, I can see out my windows and the lightning bolt, it's still there. So I ran downstairs to get my dad and I brought him all the way upstairs. I don't know why we didn't just go the hell outside the front door, but I brought him all the way upstairs because I was four years old at the time. This was 84, something like that. I'm dating myself, but that's all right. And uh, I bring my dad upstairs. The lightning bolt's gone. So I'm trying to explain to him the thunder and lightning storm and all that stuff. And he reacted as any other father would react with a four-year-old trying to tell him something crazy. And he was just like, yeah, 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 kind of patting my head. But I think I, I must have been really animated because he kind of had to kneel down, put his hands on my shoulder and say, buddy, it didn't even rain last night. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. That didn't scare me. I was just confused. I, I, I didn't know what UFOs were. Uh, maybe I knew what ghosts were, but I was just more confused than anything. So fast forward a couple weeks, I'm being woken up in the middle of the night, middle of the night to a four-year-old. I don't know if it's 10 PM or 3 AM, but I, I just know I'm woken up in the middle of the night and it's my dad and he's bringing me downstairs. And when I get downstairs, I see my sister and my mom and my sister is all dressed up in her winter attire. And my mom kind of manhandles me and gets me into all my stuff. And we're just like, what's going on? It's like, come on, you got to come outside and see this. You got to come outside and see this. So my dad scoops me up and I just, I'm, my head's buried in his chest because I'm freezing. And we get outside and we go down the steps of the porch and we go out onto the front lawn. And he's like, look up, buddy, look up and see this. And I was just scared. I, I thought my eyes were going to freeze if I took my head out of his chest, but I did. And I saw these crazy ribbons of green and blue. And I think there was a hint of red. And it was the one and only time I've ever witnessed the Northern Lights. So what those two events instilled in me is that weird stuff happens in the sky. I should probably pay attention. Ever since then, I have. I look up more than most. And I would say uh, at this point, I'm 44 years old and I've seen 13 UFOs in my lifetime. And when I say UFO, I mean unidentified flying object. I'm not saying it was extraterrestrial. Some of those maybe could have been ex explained away, but there's a few. And I'm going to tell you one of those stories. Maybe they were extraterrestrial, you know. Oh God, listening to yourself back, it's, it's cringe. So I hope, I hope this is enjoyable for you. 
But uh, moving on to the next clip that we have, it's actually another story from my past when I was in high school. So we're kind of fast forwarding like, you know, 10, 15 years. I think I'm 16 or 17 here. And I uh, tell about a story that me and a buddy experienced in Bar Harbor on West Street. So here you go. 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 I was with my buddy one night. I think I was 17, might have been 16. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Bar Harbor, but there's West Street in Bar Harbor, which runs parallel to the ocean. And when you're driving down West Street, there's all these buildings that are on the ocean side. But in between the buildings, you can kind of see bits and pieces of the ocean as you go down. And then West Street ends at the marina in Bar Harbor. You can't go straight anymore. You can only go right. And I think that's Main Street. So I'm riding with my buddy and I see this really bright thing on the water. And it's running parallel with the car. I can't imagine it's going very fast. I'm going 25 miles an hour and it feels like it's keeping pace. What was weird about it is, well, yeah, no more. It, something's on the water with lights, it's a boat, you know, especially in Bar Harbor, right? But what was weird about it is that the lights went from the top all the way to the surface of the water. And to my knowledge, I mean, I'm not a maritime expert, but to my knowledge, even a cruise ship doesn't have lights that go all the way to the surface. There's that hull, you know, and there might be some lights around the hull, but you don't really see lights that are that go all the way down to the surface. And it was almost like Christmas lights were around this thing. And it seemed pretty big, but I, I couldn't gauge how far it was. And I kept seeing it just in between buildings. So my buddy's sitting next to me. I'm like, you see this thing? And he looks. He's like, yeah, that's weird. It's got to be a boat, but it's weird. I'm like, yeah. So we get to the marina and we're seeing it unobstructed, but it's too far away to make heads or tails of it. All of the lights have kind of condensed into just one bright light that's on the water moving. And I suppose if, you know, it's dark and there's some light pollution, maybe my vision is a bit askew and I'm, I'm seeing it incorrectly. So I said, hey, let's go down to Albert Meadow and we might be able to get a better look at it because the way the water works, it kind of goes around this bend and then you can go out to open water. And Albert Meadow is right on the cusp of that bend. And Albert Meadow, it's actually just a street. And then there's a park at the end of Albert Meadow. I forget the name of it now, but there's parking and an unobstructed view of the ocean. So we kind of race up there, park down at Albert Meadow. We had beat it there, so we're standing right at the edge. The water is right here, and we're, you know, looking out crazy, waiting for this thing to go by, and sure enough, it comes into view, and it's huge. It's smaller than a cruise ship, but bigger than like a lobster boat or something. Not to mention it's winter, and we don't get cruise ships in Bar Harbor in the winter. And uh, a lobster boat, sure, but this didn't look like a lobster boat. What we saw was this domed thing on the water. It appeared to be like one single light up top and it just kind of kept getting bigger as it hit the surface of the water. And we didn't know what to make of it. It didn't make a sound, it didn't speed up. We just watched it as it slowly made its way out to open water. We didn't see it take off if it was in fact a UFO. We didn't know what to make of it. My buddy's like, it had to have been a boat. I'm like. Might have been a UFO, man. <laughs> he's like, UFOs aren't on the water. I'm like, they sure as hell are on the water and sometimes under the water. And he's like, I don't know. So anyways, 
I drop them off, I go home, and I write everything down. And that was really, besides the events that happened when I was really young, that was the catalyst for documenting these types of weird encounters. All right. <laughs> I, I can't get over the cringe. <laughs> but anyway, moving on. We're finally getting into a story that's not my own, which is great. This is a uh, quick little story that originally appeared in my Otherworldly Encounters book and is expanded upon in my new book, UFOs Over Maine, 10th Anniversary Edition, which will be out next year. And it's a story about a woman from Rangeley, Maine. She had an interesting encounter one evening with her husband at the time and her children. Let's get into it. This story is about a woman named Sue from Rangeley, Maine. And this took place in the 90s. She was married at the time, had uh, two younger kids. And it was about 9 o'clock at night. And the kids were already sitting on the couch. They had snacks. And a movie was about to come on TV that they wanted to watch. So mom and dad, they decided to go upstairs to put on their own movie and kind of like go to bed and, and call it quits for the night. So they're up there and dad's getting undressed, mom's in the bathroom, she's brushing her teeth, and she hears her husband say, what, what in the hell is that light? And she kind of pops her head out, toothbrush in her mouth, like, what are you talking about? He's like, come look at this light, it's not the moon. And so she walks over to the window and she's like, holy shit, that's not the moon. What is that? Let's go downstairs and get a better look at it. They want to go outside to look at it. So they come downstairs, they open the front door, and the kids are like, what the hell are you guys doing? Oh, there's this crazy light outside. You guys got to come see it. So now all four of them are out on the porch. The vantage point of where their room was, that made the light to their extreme right. So they had to go out onto the porch and all kind of lean over the railing and look to the right to see this moon-sized object in the sky. And it was kind of orange, kind of whitish, and they're just watching it out of nowhere. The light just goes vroom. And now it's right in front of their house and it's much lower. And they're just gobsmacked watching this moon-sized object just above the trees in front of them. And then it blinks out. And they're like, whoa, that was crazy. Well, let's go back inside, it's getting cold. The kids go in first and they look at the TV and the credits for the movie are running, the end of the movie. And they're like, what the hell, the movie's over. And mom was like, no, it's not. It's, that's just the end of the other thing. And then the other thing is going to start because it's, you know, it's still just it's just before nine. And it's like, no, 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 that's the end of the movie. And so she runs in and goes to the kitchen and looks at the time on the stove. It's 11 p.m. The entire family lost two hours. And to this day, they don't know what happened. Happened, 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 happened. Interesting story for sure. Okay, moving on to another one of my stories. Uh, this was when I was doing research for Otherworldly Encounters. So this was like back in 2017. I was doing research on Loring Air Force Base and all of the crazy UFO encounters that happened at that base. And this particular story I'm going to tell is my time going to Loring Air Force Base and spending time during the evening hours and the overnight hours on base and uh, what I experienced during that time. It's 
it's pretty interesting and uh, I hope you enjoy this story. If there's an area to go to, I want to go there and just look and just be there. And Lauren Air Force Base, I mean, come on, that's a cool place to go. When I went, which was 2017, the base is just abandoned. Hundreds of buildings. It looks like the set of The Walking Dead. Around the peripheral of the base, there's actually a lot of businesses. I think there's a job corps, there's a museum, and the Department of Defense has a finance team that works there. And they are fenced off and barbed wire fence. And I'm kind of wondering, the UFO government stuff that came out about 2012 in the five-year program, I, I wonder if some of that paperwork went through that building. Just kind of fun to think about. So I like to do things the right way. I didn't always, <laughs> but I like to do the right things now. So I, I don't want to get charged for trespassing or something. <clears throat> So I make my way and I arrive in Presque Isle and the main state police headquarters is right there. And I let them know what I'm doing. And they're like, okay, weirdo, have, have a good time. But we may be patrolling that area. It's still a, a ways away from Presque Isle, but they have a local police unit up there. So you probably want to tell them too. I'm like, okay. So now I make my way to Limestone and there is a uh, police barracks there. I can't remember if it's actually a limestone police or what little town it is, but it's the closest one to Loring. So I'm like, that, that's probably where I should go. I'm gonna be there from like 1 a.m. to like 4 a.m. Like, you sure that's cool? And they're like, yeah, 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 have fun. So I go there during the day to get my bearings. I've never been before. And it's just this amazing place. I don't know if you've ever been, but it's awesome. The, the, the runways are still there, unobstructed, all these huge hangars, and, uh, and you can't go into anything. But some of the doors are open or missing, so I kind of stuck my head in and checked stuff out. Uh, I'm like, okay, I want to go to the radar tower. I want to go to the runway where the UFO was. That's a cool place to go. There's this huge hangar that's creepy during the day. Imagine one in the morning. It's going to be really cool. So I'm like, I want to go there too. So I go back to the hotel room I take a nap, wake up. And I head over there. It's probably midnight. I go to the hangar. And yeah, it's creepy at midnight. <laughs> and uh, I'm standing right outside and it's got this big open doorway. And there's just a piece of wood. So you can't cross it. You could go underneath it and stuff. But I don't know if there's cameras. Yeah, I don't want to mess around. So I stick my hand in with a recorder and I start asking some questions to maybe catch some electronic voice phenomena. I didn't catch anything. It was also really drizzly that night, so I was getting wet, and there was a cloud cover, and I'm like, ah, maybe this wasn't the best time to go. But if I see a light, and it's under the cloud cover, that probably means it's not a celestial object. So I'm like, maybe that does work in my advantage. So then I make my way over to the runway. It's 2 a.m. now. I'm sitting in complete darkness, an unobstructed view of the sky, which is basically gray or black. Uh, the car's not on, so there's no dash lights or anything. I was also a smoker at the time, so I was getting a headache. There's all this white noise from the drizzle. I'm like, I got to get the hell out of the car. So I start up the car. I'm like overwhelmed by the lights of the dash. <laughs> I step out and I light a cigarette. And I'm like, okay, some fresh air, uh, but I'm also smoking. But, you know, that, that helps a smoker. <laughs> I start to hear something. And I, if you can strain yours, I don't know if you can, but I'm straining my ears to hear. I can't see anything because it's still pitch black. And I'm like, what is that? 
Is that somebody walking? On the runway? At two in the morning? This is scary now. So I walk in front of the car. And it's louder. And it's weird footsteps. Well, maybe that's how an alien walks. I don't know. How do you know? They, they might walk weird. And it's just a weird set of footsteps. And I'm straining to listen. And I'm right next to the car. I'm like, oh, it's my intermittent windshield wipers. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I didn't die. This is cool. Let's go to the radar tower. So now I'm at the radar tower, probably three in the morning. And I got the radar tower in front of me. And then the sky, but it's not unobstructed because of the radar tower. And the car's running. I'm not in pitch black. I'm holding my cell phone. I got a bunch of gear next to me. So I'm looking at the radar tower. And right to the right, there's a light in the sky. And it's under the clouds. I'm like, oh, something's happening. And I'm not an interviewer. I'm not a researcher. I'm not a writer in that moment. I'm an experiencer. I'm just human and watching it. I've got night vision camera, a parabolic mic, an audio recorder right next to me. And all I can do is look at it because that's how amazing it is when something like this happens. And I'm like, whoa, I've got to get under it. That was my instincts. Get under it and see if you can get a shot of it. So I put the car in drive and I look down. I'm like holding cell phone, hit record. <laughs> So I've got a night vision camera, hit record on cell phone, <laughs> and I'm holding it. I put the car in drive, and I move five feet, five feet, and the UFO or whatever the hell it was didn't like it. And it does this weird wispy motion and disappears, and I caught it on camera. It's actually on my YouTube channel if you want to check it out. Just search for Nomar Slavic on YouTube, go to my channel, scroll until you see Loring UFO. It's really nothing more than a light in the sky. Uh, but given the context of the experiences there throughout the decades and me going there on a day where there's cloud cover and seeing something, it was a big deal. I'll never forget that moment. Definitely recommend going to Loring Air Force Base if you can. It's an amazing time. I know it's a it's a ways away <laughs> for a lot of you. So if you can get there, though, I definitely highly recommend it. All right, moving on. The next story brings us to Camden, Maine. And it's the story of a teenager who experienced a flying creature. This is the creature on Washington Street. You guys heard of Mothman? Yeah. For those who haven't, it's this winged <laughs> creature. Depending on who you ask, it's kind of got no shoulders. It's almost like a head and shoulders and looks like maybe a, a six foot tall owl with big red eyes. You ask somebody else and it's this more humanoid figure. You ever see Jeepers Creepers? Kind of like that guy without the hat. I'm sitting in my room in Bangor, Maine. And I'm like, I wonder if there's ever been a Mothman in Maine. Well, how do I go about finding that? I'm kind of dumb, guys. So I just Googled it. I just Googled Mothman and Maine. And there's a story. And all I could find was the headline, Man Encounters Mothman-Like Creature in Camden. I'm like, oh my, this is cool. I can't find the story, just this headline. I have a colleague, her name's Michelle Sawyer. She wrote the book, Bigfoot in Maine, which I highly recommend you check out. 
What little information I had, I sent to her because she's brilliant. Maybe a week went by. She sends me the story. I got the witness's real name and I'm good to go. So I get on my Facebook and I start typing in that name. Well, you know, you don't realize when you type a name into Facebook, how many people have that same name nationwide, worldwide. So there were a lot of this name. So I tried to narrow it down with people from Maine and New England. And I sent a lot of messages to a lot of confused people, I think. <laughs> Maybe two weeks later, I got a reply. It was the dude. And he's like, yeah, that's me. I saw Mothman in, in Camden. I'm like, no, shit, that's crazy. I'm like, here's what I'm doing. I'm a writer. I'm working on a book. Can I interview you and tell this story? And he's like, absolutely. But I don't want to do this in person. I don't want to do it over the phone. And I don't want you to use my real name. I'm like, all right. Whatever the witness wants to make them comfortable. To be able to share a story from someone is a privilege. I treat it as a privilege. So what they need me to do, I'm, I'm most likely going to do. So I said, okay. So I interviewed him over Facebook Messenger. And he told me the whole story. He gave me the street address of where this encounter happened. His story goes as follows. It's about 2006. He's 17 at the time. It's about 6 p.m. And he's walking from downtown Camden up to the apartment building where him and his parents live. Why am I interrupting my own podcast, you might ask? My online store is now fully restocked. Granite Skies, Check. A Strange Trilogy, Check. Otherworldly Encounters, Check. and so much more at slevicstore.company.site. Check the show notes for links. Some titles are also available at the Greenhand Bookshop in Portland, Maine or greenhandbookshop.com. And as he's walking, he starts to hear this chirping sound, this loud kind of chirping sound. So he thinks there's like a rat or something at his feet. So he looks down and he sees the shadow of something big that's flying above him. So he looks up and he sees this enormous creature that's making this sound. And he said the creature's body was about four, four and a half feet in length. The head, there was no discernible eyes or mouth but it had tubes coming out of it. And he drew it, it's in the book. It's weird. And the wings looked like bat wings. The color of it was kind of brownish, kind of transparent. And he watches it, he's like, oh, what is this? And it kind of does the swoop thing right over his apartment building and goes into the swamp behind his house. He told, everybody far and wide about what he saw. He was not ashamed. He was confident. So I don't care what you think. This is what I saw. And his parents and his friends were like, they believed him, but they're like, eh, maybe it was a sandhill crane or something, which has been seen in the area. And it's a bird with a pretty big wingspan. He's like, no, I, I know what I saw. What happened after that, he started having these reoccurring dreams. But he told me, I think they're dreams, but they feel like memories. I don't know how else to describe it, but almost every night I'm dreaming that I'm in the same spot where I saw the creature, but there's a house that's above me and it turns into a UFO and takes off. And he's having that dream every night. 
as the school year comes to a close and he starts working and he's trying to figure <clears> out, uh, you know, getting all his plans together for college and all that good stuff, it all kind of fades away. He starts freshman year at a college. He comes back that summer. He's back in Camden working. He's on a day off riding around town with his buddy. And as he and his buddy are riding around town, this thing smacks into his windshield. And he described it as like this paper mache mess slapped onto his windshield. They could see a wing and it looked like the same type of wing of the large creature that he saw. They kind of roll to a stop and they're just staring at this thing that's on the windshield in front of them. As soon as the car comes to a stop, that wing flutters, it comes to life and takes off. They were both like, what the hell was that? And he's like, that might be a juvenile version of what I saw last year. Really interesting about that thing that hit the windshield and him and his buddy believing that it could be a juvenile version of what he saw the previous summer. Really interesting. And uh, in talking with this gentleman, he gave me the address of his former apartment building so I could go check out the area for myself. And I did back in 2017, 2018, I'm not 100% sure. And the following account is what happened during my time there. Since I have the address, I go down to Camden and I measured the eaves of his apartment building. And from eave to eave, where he saw this creature fly over, he said the wingspan went from one side of the eave to the other. When I measured it, it was 27 feet. That's like the size of a Cessna or something, you know? I have a girlfriend at the time and she has a son and I love this kid to death. He was 10, 11 years old at the time and uh, he is still in my life. He's 17 now and I love him right to death. Uh, but he, we, we all decided to make a trip out of going to Camden for a few nights so I could investigate at night and we could do some fun stuff in Camden during the day. Well, the kiddo is like, can I go with you on one of your night things? So we look at mom huh? and she's like, all right. And he tends to get scared of the dark. And I'm like, are you sure you're going to be okay? He's like, I'm with you. It's fine. Okay. So we head out. It's probably one o'clock in the morning. We both took naps. I'm not a terrible person. <laughs> and uh, I got him some Sour Patch Kids. So maybe I'm a little terrible. And we park at the swamp where this thing supposedly flew into. And I played him the trailer to the Mothman Prophecies. Not my best moment, because it freaked him out. And all he could focus on were the red eyes. We're sitting there, about an hour goes by. Bugs are horrible, so we're putting the windows up, we're putting them down, we're putting them up. And he, he goes, hey, hey, I've been seeing something over here, and I've seen it a few times now, but I didn't want to mention anything until I was sure. I'm like, okay, well, what do you see? I see red eyes. I'm thinking, okay, he's a little freaked out. He wants to impress me or, you know, you know how kids are. And he's like, look over here. You see that tree? And there was a tree probably 20, 25 yards out. And there was a really big branch coming off of it. And I'd estimate maybe 10 feet up. He's like, look just under that branch. Just watch there. That's where it always is. Okay, buddy. Holy shit, there's red eyes. I see it. I see the red eyes. And then they go away. He said, you see it? Yeah. 
we keep watching. We see him again. We see him three or four more times. Is that Mothman? Like, I don't know, buddy. I don't know. That was pretty cool, huh? And he's like, yeah, that was really cool. So we go back to the hotel room, go back to sleep, all that good stuff. I wake up in the morning and I go back over there by myself because I want to see this area in the daylight. Sure enough, there's a tree. Sure enough, there's the branch. And yeah, I'd say that's about 10 feet up, maybe even 11. I'm not about to like walk in the swamp or anything to like go check out that area. Uh, but I did check out where we parked just to see if there are any weird footprints or anything. There's nothing. But what I did notice was beyond the tree, I saw a truck go by. I don't know how far it was, but there's a road beyond the tree, beyond the swamp. And it might have been the back red lights of cars randomly going by. I'm like, ah, if it's possible that it's something else. I can't say I saw the Mothman of Camden, you know, but I can write a really cool story about this little kid and me going over there and explaining what they saw and be honest about it could have been a car. What's interesting, though, the eyes or whatever it was, they would just come on and then they would just almost like it was a really slow closing of the eyes. There wasn't any movement to it. As you would think, maybe a car with the lights you're seeing in the dark might move through the trees. There wasn't a movement, so I can't say for sure it was a car, but it's possible. So I'm not sure what that was, but we had a, a really good time in Camden those, those few days. And he and I still talk about the red eyes we saw at the swamp in, in Camden. It was a good time. Yeah, we really did have a good time. And it's true, even to this day, he and I still reminisce about the Mothman encounters. <laughs> and I saved this next portion for last. It's a long segment. It's over 16 minutes long. And it discusses about how I got into writing and publishing, how the um, publishing process went for me, and the trials and tribulations uh, of all of that. And if that's not your bag and you don't want to listen to it, that's cool. You know, I don't mind. At least you got some of the stories already, the paranormal stuff. And this last part has to do with the writing process and that may be interesting to some and not to others and that's cool i will come back after this segment just to close out the show so uh check it out and uh, i hope you enjoy this segment when i was a teenager i started collecting stories of the strange. I didn't care if they were ghost stories or reincarnation stories or UFO stories. I was collecting them all. I would ask friends and family. He got a ghost story, he got a UFO story. And, and I would scour the police beat of our local papers to see if anybody had reported anything and I'd cut them out and keep them. And I asked a buddy one day, just randomly, if he had ever seen a UFO. And he lived in Southwest Harbor. I think his parents had some money because they lived on the water and there was a balcony. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a thing I know about, but he was out there having breakfast one day and this was, you know, eight o'clock in the morning. He's eating breakfast, not even looking at the water, but he hears like a splash or some sort of movement in the water in front of him. He looks up just in time to see like almost parallel with his house. He sees this silver thing dripping water and it keeps climbing up and up and until it's out of sight. Me being 17, 18 years old, I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. So I wrote all that down and I scoured the paper. And sure enough, there were three other reports of people who saw the same thing in town. And it did make the police beat, which was really cool to me. 
And I had gotten the inside scoop before the paper came out. And uh, that made me feel pretty cool, you know, collecting stories and collecting stories. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s and I have a bookshelf in my room and it's filled with UFO books and local books. And I'm looking at them and there's one particular book. It's called The Supernatural Side of Maine. It's by C.J. Stevens. It's out of print, and I highly recommend that you try to find it at your local mom and pop or eBay or Amazon if you have to. In that book, it was riddled with ghost stories, UFO stories, werewolf stories, all in me. And that book fascinated me. I'm looking at it on the shelf, and I'm seeing all these other ghost books. I was like, someone should really write a book about UFOs in Maine. Huh, that's a that's an interesting idea. And I kind of go on with my life. It wasn't until maybe eight years later. I was like, yeah, I want to look at my collection of stories. And I pull out my folder and there was a ton of them. I'm like, maybe I should write that book. No, I'm not a writer. Well, I am actually. I write songs. I write, I, at the time, I was writing a lot of fiction work. I have a hobby of writing fictional horror stories. Maybe I am a writer. Maybe I can do this. I don't know. So I just started writing down some of these stories. And when you're looking at a police beat thing, it's, you know, three sentences. You don't have a lot to go on. And I didn't know anything about interviewing people or, or if a name wasn't in there, how do I find a name? Can I call the police? I don't like the police. Should I call them? I didn't know what to do. So I just started writing and kind of filling out the story. Well, if it took place in Southwest Harbor, I can write about Southwest Harbor a little bit, a little bit of history of Southwest Harbor, uh, see if there's been other stories from Southwest Harbor, and, and kind of round out the story. I did that enough times that I was like, I, I think I have a book's worth of material here. Well, how the hell do you publish a book? I didn't know how to do that either. So I Googled it. <laughs> and uh, there's a surprising amount of uh, resources on how to either self-publish or to submit manuscripts for writing. And uh, I'm like, okay, maybe I can do this. So instead of just picking out random publishers, I went back to my bookshelf. I'm like, well, these guys put out books about ghosts and these people put out books. You know, they put out the C.J. Stevens book. I'm going to find all these publishers online and see if they might be interested in publishing a book on UFOs and me. What you got to do, actually, is go to each individual publisher's website and see what their submission process is. And every one of them, God bless them, got to be freaking different. <laughs> Basically, what it boils down to is you need an outline and hopefully some sample chapters. I had both of those things. So I put together the best presentation that I could, and I emailed all of these publishers. And I got a lot of no's. I got some that didn't even respond. And it was frustrating, as you can imagine. You never know when they're going to respond. So I let months go by waiting to hear back, you know. And once I realized it's not going to happen, I started researching self-publishing options. And there's a, a lot of resources out there for that, too. So I found a site that I thought was, you know, reputable and not a vanity publishing. Vanity publishing is when you pay to have somebody put out your material. And, you know, it was... <laughs> 
in my uh, late 20s, early 30s, and uh, didn't have a whole lot of money. So that wasn't going to be an option. So I found this site. All you do is upload your manuscript, and they format it into a book. There's a cover creator and all this fun stuff. And then you can order what's called a proof copy, which is a printed copy of what the book will look like if you, in fact, choose to sell it through them. So I ordered one, and you had to pay for it. I think it was five bucks. I'm waiting for this proof to come in the mail. The day it came in, my roommate at the time emailed me, said, hey, your package came today. And I was like, oh, shit, okay. I'm going to go home for lunch, and I'm going to look at this book. When I parked my car to when I was walking into the apartment, I got an email from Schiffer Publishing, and they were interested in putting my book out. On my walk in to look at this self-published book, and I'm reading it, and, you know, it says, it was, it was kind of a form letter, if you will, but, you know, we're interested. Here are the terms. If you're interested, you know, reply, and we'll send out a contract. So I go inside. I open the proof, and I'm looking at it. I'm like, this is amazing. That, this is something I wrote, and it's tangible. It's in my hand. That's really tempting to just go with the thing that's done. So I open the book. I'm like, this looks weird. And it's all double-spaced. You guys read books. You, you don't see a book that's double-spaced that looks weird. It's too much white space. And I didn't realize that. I just uploaded my Word document file, which was double-spaced, and that's how it looked. I'm like, okay, well, I can fix that. I guess. So I'm looking at the book and I'm kind of looking at the phone and I'm like, shit, I got to get back to work. And what do I do here? And it became obvious after a moment, go with the publisher, man. That's like, you know, a music artist being signed. That's like an athlete being signed. It's definitely not like those things, but that's what my mind, (laughs) that's what my mind was like. So I went with the publisher and they were absolutely wonderful people, a completely green author who didn't know how to format anything. He just had a pile of ideas and stories. And this editor that worked with me, she took the time to understand me and to help me shape this manuscript into something that's readable. And in 2014, this was a two-year process. In 2014 is when they finally published my first book, which is UFOs Over Me. And it was available everywhere. In New England, you could walk into a Walmart and see my book or a a Target or a Bull Moose or whatever. And I couldn't believe it. I would go visit the stores and take pictures by the book. (laughs) I I, I honestly still do that. (laughs) It was amazing. Uh, What wasn't amazing was the money. That was essentially a lifetime of work up until that point, although I didn't really know that at the time, but a lifetime of work that kind of boiled down to we make most of the money because we're taking a chance and here's a little something for you, which is not livable by any means. But I really didn't care because you could walk into Walmart and see my book. (laughs) So I thought that was cool. And publishers, only in my experience, in the contract I signed, there's a stipulation in there where you have to give them first right of refusal for your next book. And in my case, it was my next two books. Maybe I should have read that a little little better. But uh, so UFOs Over Maine comes out. It actually does surprisingly well. Not a huge moneymaker, but it sold well throughout New England. So they started bugging me in 2015 about, hey, have you thought about a new manuscript? And I was like, yeah, UFOs Over Maine part two. Because there's thousands of stories. 
and they're like, part twos don't really do well. Any, you got anything else? So I thought about it. I submitted a couple other things, and they weren't interested. And they said, well, you can, if you, if you have to do UFOs over Maine part two, if that's what you're settled on for your next project, then we don't want to work with you. And I was like, oh, okay. And I, I was back to square one. Do I self-publish this next book? Do I find a new publisher? What the hell do I do? I had a little bit more experience, and my editor gave me a lot of insight. I started submitting a manuscript to other publishers, and another publisher was interested. I couldn't believe it. Oh. <laughs> we'll see what happens here. No, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm not here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this publisher was interested in my stories, and they're like, "This is great. We want to put it out. We now need sixty-five thousand words from you. That's a lot of words. If you're not an author, or if you're a new author, because my other book is about half that. Oh, so you want a book this thick as opposed to this thick? Is that's how my mind works? And they're like, "Yeah." dummy. And I'm like, okay. So that brought me to the art of rounding out the story. Like I was telling you, let me talk about the town. Let me talk about other stories maybe surrounding the town. And then I'll get to the crux of the big story that I want to tell. That feels a lot of words. And it makes it almost a novelization of people's stories and makes it easy to read. Because when I was in high school, my library had about four books on UFOs, and they were a slog to get through. They read like textbooks, and uh, the heart of the little stories that were in there were amazing. But there was all this pontification on, you know, what does it all mean, or where are they from, and, you know, all this stuff that I wasn't interested in. I was interested in people's stories and how it affected them. It's a big, anybody in here see a UFO? Raise a hand. Yeah, so we got some. It's it's a big deal. For some people, it's life-changing. And I don't care if it's a light in the sky or if you feel like you've been taken aboard. It can be life-changing. And those are the stories that I wanted to focus on. So the new publisher, well, what do you want to call it? UFOs over Maine Part 2. And I know that we, we didn't publish the first book. We can't put out a book that's a Part 2 to a book and another publisher. Well, I didn't know that. So they're like, come up with another title. Well, I wanted the name to be UFOs Over Maine 2, Otherworldly Encounters. And I'm like, huh, scratch UFOs Over Maine 2, Otherworldly Encounters is up. That's a cool title. So I submitted that as the title, and they're like, yeah, but now you need a subtitle. I don't know why all these books need a subtitle, but they got them. And they added a subtitle. I'm like, yeah, whatever the hell, that's fine. It's a year-long process. I don't know why that process is so long. I guess because I'm not the only author at their at their publishing house, which makes sense. But when you're the author, you're like, just put it out. It's done. You know, it's edited. Just put it out. It was edited and it was still eight months before it was going to come out. It's crazy. But what they do is they put up what's called a net galley. And a net galley is people that are interested in reviewing books before they come out. They can read your book in PDF form. And so they put it up in a net galley, and it was getting some pretty good reviews. I always love an October release date. You know, that's my, you know, October's my jam. But they're like, let's put it out in July. How's that sound? I'm like, that's a weird month. But I'm not in charge. And they asked me as a courtesy, because 
if you don't know, publishers do whatever the hell they want to do <laughs> and just put out your thing when they want to. So I went along with that, and that was an amazing reception. And then came the piece in the contract about first right of refusal. I had another book. It was about a gentleman from New Hampshire who's had a lifetime of encounters. We're talking from three years old to this day. He might even be in the room right now because he's a really good guy and he supports me. And it's called Granite Skies. And I submitted it to that publisher. And they were like, yeah, this is good. Let's put it out. I'm like, okay. First, though, let's get the money right a little bit, you know. And like, what do you mean? Because they sent the terms over. And it was the same terms as the book three years ago. No increase in price. That didn't sit well with me. This is a year. It's two years of my life writing these things. And I don't feel as though I'm getting compensated fairly. So the gentleman that I wrote the book about, I asked him, I was like, hey, man, the money's not right. And uh, I don't know if I want to put the book out with them, but I'm under contract for another two years. So if we walk away, it might mean we can't put the book out for another two years. He's like, I trust you. You do what you got to do. So I go back to them and I go, how about this? Here's what I want. And I would like final approval on the cover and the title. But the body of the book, edit as you see fit. They refused to do it. And it was so important for the subject of the book and me to have the title and the cover that we wanted. We had to have what we wanted uh, or it wasn't going to work for us. Also, the body of the book, we both fell in love with. I don't think I can budge on that either. Sure, there might be some editing things that need cleaning up. I'm cool with that. But they wouldn't even grant me, you know, right of final approval on the manuscript. And I was afraid they might change too many things. So I told them no. And I don't think small publishers are used to hearing no very often. So they came back with another offer. This is four days now. And I'm losing my mind. I'm like, oh, my God, I've made the biggest mistake in my life. I just walked away from a publisher, and we've got this amazing book that's got to come out. And their last offer was laughable, in my opinion. Still, they're lovely people, but it was laughable. So I said no. And then I asked them, can I take the manuscript and do whatever I want with it now, or do I have to wait two years? And those good people at Llewellyn allowed me out of my contract so I could do what I wanted with that manuscript, which means since it was done and all edited, we could put the book out how we wanted to. So during a pandemic, without a publisher, we put out a book called Granite Skies, which tells the story of Mike Stevens and his extraterrestrial encounters from three years old all the way to current times. And we did it our way. It's the most proud of anything I've ever done. And, uh, and it was an amazing experience. And we walked away from a publisher just so we could put it out exactly the way that we wanted to. So um, I, I definitely hope you check out that book. So this is about the time in the podcast where I ask, what do you believe? 
And that's all we got for this 11th episode of season six of the I Want to Believe podcast. Join us next month for our season finale, where I will be joined by Valerie LaFasso, and we'll be talking about a creature that was encountered by a man in New Hampshire. You don't want to miss this one. Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at 207Believe, and don't be afraid to DM us some show topic ideas. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Nomar Slavic. Then put them to rest and put